Hiya, Duncan Green here, um, bringing you up to date on latest developments on the From Poverty to Power blog, while keeping one eye on the cricket where England show every sign of throwing away uh, a good position against India. India seems to be doing an amazing fight back. Um, I don't know if you're interested in cricket, but if you are, this has been an amazing series and it isn't over yet. But I will try and focus on work, even though the cricket's fascinating. Um, We've actually had a takeover of the blog uh, for the last couple of weeks. I was away and I've come back, but um, what I am doing during August and most of September is uh, handing over to a fantastic series of blogs by Congolese researchers from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, it's a series originally published in French called the Bukavu series. Um, and there's a lot of attention already on this blog to localizing aid. You know, how do you get aid? money into local organisations, power, you know, become less colonial. And it turns out that there's a very, very similar parallel conversation within the research world where you have basically a sort of supply chain of research where the pecking order is dominated by researchers in the north and researchers in the south who are usually referred to as research assistants or data collectors are systematically kind of... Um, uh, underestimated and, and, and sort of um, deprived of, of possibilities. So um, the Bukaba series tries to put that right and it's written by a group of 30 Congolese researchers uh, with a few European colleagues in support and illustrations with a, by a really great Congolese cartoonist called Tembo Cash which just brings some of the situations alive. Uh, it's been published as a as a blog series, but also now as a 140 page book. So I just thought this is a really good piece of work. So anything I can do to to bring it to the public eye and just, um, you know, uh, publicize some of the issues that are um, uh, is worth doing. The I've got about 12 posts, I think, overall, 13 posts, um, and they, they cover a couple of um, three main issues. Positionality, which is, you know, the consequences for researchers have been piggy in the middle between communities and then these outsiders who come in and ask questions. The practice, how do you actually do research in the middle of a conflict zone like uh, Eastern DRC? And then the whole question of power, this north-south asymmetries of power within the research business, but also between men and women. So I'm going to read you through some of them because I just think they're really good. Uh, let's get started. So the first up was an introduction to the series by Kern Blassenroot, Emery Mudinga, Godfrey Musalia, Aymani Nyenyezi Bisoka and Anne Ansoms, which just uh, sort of paints the picture. So it says, in early 2018, some 30 researchers based in both the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Europe gathered together in the eastern Congolese city of Bukavu to discuss the persistent sidelining of southern researchers in contemporary cycles of knowledge production. Over the next two years, the group would reconvene repeatedly in Bukavu for a series of intensive workshops. Throughout these gatherings, participants sought to explore the ethical issues that arise when northern researchers engage colleagues from the global south to carry out fieldwork in conflict and post-conflict settings. The blog posts presented in the Bukavu series critique existing logics behind the production of knowledge, but also reflect on our own responsibilities. The different contributions call for a more inclusive debate and the recognition of a number of ethical challenges the research collaborators and assistants face. One of these challenges is related to the strategies they have to employ in order to navigate access in the field to the field. Although these contributors play a crucial role in forging access to difficult areas and source persons, collecting data, 
writing preliminary research reports and eventually disseminating research results, their role has seldom been made visible in research outputs in all those academic papers that get published. A second challenge is related to research collaborators and assistants' interactions with populations in context of violence, conflict or economic hardship. As some blog posts witness, research collaborators and assistants in the field often struggle with responding or failing to respond to populations' financial expectations and their questions concerning communication of research results back to the local level. Besides the inherent ethical issues, this also complicates any potential return to these populations as part of future research activities. A third and often neglected challenge that this series tackles is how to deal with the emotional dimensions of doing research. Research in conflict-affecting environments can have profound effects on researchers' mental well-being. However, doing research at home comes with a wide range of difficult challenges that are largely ignored by the wider research community and by those funding the research. Various posts focus on researchers' entanglements and traumas and shed light on strategies that might reduce the risk of traumatisation. A fourth challenge is linked to the administrative and financial conditions of research projects. Some researchers criticise the fact that they are often used without a written or clear contract and without responsibilities being clearly defined if something happens to them in the field. Referring to the absence of an employment contract, some criticise the imprecision that characterises their involvement in research. They often do not know what each person's obligations and rights are in the process and the duration of their service. Some say they are paid according to the terms defined by the one who recruits without prior discussion or agreement. Others say that they are asked to produce additional work long after they thought they had already finished and without being paid for it. Other blog posts criticise the fact that researchers are sent to the field without being covered by any insurance, in contrast to senior researchers, particularly from the North. Even more, the question of insurance for collaborators and research assistants is seldom addressed. So that's the overview. It's quite a you know, broad brush, but it really comes to life in the, in, in the specific posts. So I'm going to talk you through a few of those. So the first one uh, is called When You Become Pombe Yangu, which means my beer. And this is by Jeremy Mapatanu uh, Byakumbwa. And, he's, uh, and it's about how do you deal with the fact that people ask for money, basically. They ask researchers for money. In my own experience as a researcher in Eastern DRC, there have been numerous occasions on which I've had to deal with explicit demands for money or some sort of tip from my respondents. Once an, uh, an informant refused to do any sort of interview with me until he had clarified that he would be expecting Pombiangu, my drink or my beer. In another case, the secretary of the local administrator who had processed my mission order would follow me around whenever he saw me in the field telling me, Mr. Researcher, where are my beers? Other researchers give us a whole case of beer. One of these days when you need my help again, you better watch out. To avoid refusal of a future mission order, I finally gave him a sum of money equivalent to the cost of a few beers. In another, in another area, we were less lucky and the local chief administrator held our mission orders for ransom. He locked them away in his desk and made it very clear that unless we offered him four cases of beer, we would not be allowed to have them and would therefore be unable to begin our research. Even after we had shown our gratitude, which is to say bought in those beers, our research experience remained difficult throughout the course of the project, since we had already garnered a bad reputation among local authorities as researchers who didn't easily hand over money. Negotiating field access with local authorities is not the only case. Often research participants also demand money from researchers. 
We are routinely required to pay interviewees, and this is often a precondition for access to informants, people to interview. If we don't give anything, we risk incurring distrust or even aggression. So in the moment, we try to be pragmatic, giving out small sums of money in order to ensure that a good dynamic develops and a positive research atmosphere can prevail in the field. This helps a lot, to the point where even after our research concludes, interviewees may stay in touch and continue to provide some field data from afar. But at the same time, this practice, widely shared among local researchers, often has to remain a trade secret in our line of work. Because in broader debates about field ethics, paying to get information is often considered taboo or seen as contributing to the commodification of field data. Because of this, the subject of fieldwork facilitation is almost never discussed with outsiders, project funders or research sponsors. We must grapple with the financial and security risks this entails on our own. And yeah, the request, reasonably enough, is that that should be brought out into the open and that it should be part of project design. And researchers really shouldn't have to take that money out of their own already very small income from doing the research. There should be some other way of doing this. Next post was by Francine Mudinga, Mudunga, sorry, um, and it's got a rather um, academic title. Epistemological rupture, detachment and decentering. Requirements when doing research at home. But basically, Francine, as far as I can work out, is discussing some messy, messy issues that face many researchers when they're researching in their own communities. And she says, a researcher is first and foremost a human being, as such is a product of her society. She's defined by a particular worldview, um, a specific collection of values and beliefs and a certain frame of knowledge. This researcher produces and constructs field data, but her identity colours all parts of the research process, from the very fact of her interest in the subject, to her strategies for accessing field, to the way she reads her data. But at the same time, the researcher must approach information with a certain detachment so since there is never any truly final word in academic research, there is thus a permanent tension between one's passion for a particular subject of research and the scholarly detachment one needs in order to study the topic in an academically valid way. But the point she's making is that this tension is all the more intense for researchers and research assistants living in their own research area. To begin with, local roots offer research, a researcher certain advantages. He or she has much easier access to the field in comparison to an outsider. Um, a mastery of the local language offers easier entry, has the ability to interact directly with her interlocutors. So local routes give a researcher a certain credibility and make it much easier to build trust with research participants. But on the other hand, having intense local connections also presents a series of challenges. First of all, a researcher's preconceptions about her own terrain can bias the way she approaches the research. What may seem like common sense to the researcher may in fact be a socially constructed interpretation of reality. Also, being part of a community can lead to conflicted loyalties. For example, researchers may feel obliged to obscure the reality in communities in which armed groups are active. Talking about this reality, even in academic language, may be seen as a kind of betrayal among certain members of the community. Also, working on subjects that involve the researcher personally is even more complicated. For instance, it is very difficult to engage research assistants in the study of cultural initiation practices in their own communities, particularly if they themselves underwent these practices in their youth. Their local roots offer them rich insider insights, but it's almost impossible for them to assume an academic attachment, detachment rather, 
from processes that are so central to their own lives. Fantastic. So interesting that 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 level of reflection and reflect, you know, about the position of researchers when they're researching their own communities. So that was positionality. And then we go on to the nitty gritty practice section. And those are the last few posts I'm going to read you some chunks of. So first of all, we have Judith Nchumbole, who talks about donor researchers and recipient researchers. So basically, there's researchers who are very similar to aid donors. They're the ones with the money and the budgets. And there's recipient researchers, which in aid terms would be the beneficiaries, the recipient organisations. And that asymmetry is reproduced very much in research. To begin with, the recipient researcher rarely gets to have any sort of substantial involvement in defining the objectives of a study. The aim of the research is often determined by the donor researcher who sets his or her own objectives. He or she is the one who leads discussions, negotiates contracts, sets guidelines and defines the results to be achieved in line with the funder's requirements, all of which takes place in spaces the recipient researcher has no access to. This imbalance in the power relationship between donor researchers and recipient researchers extends to all other aspects of a project. During the implementation stage, local researchers end up receiving directives that they have to adapt to the realities of the field. Oftentimes their expertise isn't taken into account during this phase either. There are, for instance, certain sensitive areas where you can't go around asking questions to just anyone. These are war zones. However, if the interview instructions developed for the project are overly rigid, this can pre prevent recipient researchers from making their own adjustments. During data collection, the people being interviewed sometimes ask for feedback. How is the data that we provided going to be used later? Is one question that often gets brought up by respondents in the field. People get interviewed many times by researchers. Researchers keep coming back and people want to know what happened to the last lot. At times, recipient researchers have no answer to such questions since once they've collected the data and submitted their field reports, their jobs are done. And expectations, sorry, and sometimes in the cases where local researchers prove bold enough to engage with the community's expectations regarding some sort of follow-up, all they can really say is, look, we're still waiting to hear about our Northern Partners plans. More often than not, Donor researchers just leave the area, while recipient researchers may have to work with the same communities in the future. A lack of accountability towards participant populations in one project can lead local researchers to be poorly received in the same area on future visits, since respondents may begin to see them as people who come to the community merely to get rich off the data they collect there. So that was painful to read and very plausible, I thought. Fifth post is about methodologies and it's called when focus groups when focus groups fail the argument in favor of involving local uh, researchers in project design and it's by Vedastis Satilu Aliniru excuse me I'm getting a bit dry quick slurp <coughs> only water I hasten to add one qualitative technique popular among researchers is the use of focus groups but this technique is subject to several challenges because the project leader or funder, when the project leader or funder is an outsider and isn't sufficiently familiar with the local context. It seems at times that project leaders merely impose certain methods and techniques upon local researchers just to show that they've met sampling criteria rather than to truly gather serious information. This sounds hugely frustrating, I have to say, 
because people see these that these processes repeat themselves over and over again, and they feel very frustrated about being unable to fix them, which is why I think the Bukavu series was so cathartic for people to be able to talk about it in public and hopefully have some influence. Local researchers are then obliged to adopt these methods in order to satisfy their project leaders or funders. This problem can arise in many research projects. Local researchers are often seen as implementers and not really as partners. Project leaders design their studies upstream without soliciting the opinions of local researchers. And at best, local researchers are asked for a bit of security information or contacts or are entrusted with logistical tasks or with establishing connections in the field. They become fixers. At worst, they are contacted practically on the evening eve of the study to be asked if they want to participate. But we often ignore the fact that viewing local researchers as mere implementers can have a negative impact on the quality of the data we receive. And then Vidasti talks about his own experience. Yeah, where in several of the studies I have worked on, the project leader or funder has insisted on organising focus groups. Due to a lack of resources, the number of days in the field was often limited in relation to the number of focus groups planned. This being the case, it was necessary to improvise and try to convince people, uh, the people present, to participate in group interviews. The participants were neither informed of the study in advance nor selected along the lines of the study's pre-established criteria. As a result, only a handful of participants or a single actor monopolised the interviews. In some cases, the less talkative participants just sat there, silently blinking at us. Others furrowed their brows or held their hands up by their cheeks with one finger extended, waiting for a chance to speak. Out of fear or respect for the chief's authority, or sometimes to safeguard their private interests, throughout many discussions, participants responded to questions only with, the chief has said everything. Despite efforts to balance out the debate, others began their comments with, as the chief was saying. This sounds, I've been in these situations, it's painful. In addition, some participants use coded language among themselves. This is getting interesting. In order to respectfully contest their chief's ideas, participants tended to answer in proverbs. In one case, a Burinya elder, when the chief ordered him to provide additional input to discussion, replied, one can't say everything, chief, but you have said the essential things. One woman in a couple's focus group about family planning answered her questions with, answered our questions with, in Bushy, two people do not speak, which means my husband's ideas suffice. I'm not allowed to contradict him. These examples show that applying qualitative methods without mastering the local context or taking subtle signals into account is problematic. Silences, body language, paralinguistic cues, all of these are data whose meaning the researcher must interpret. These metadata reveal plenty of interesting information that ought to be incorporated. But often it isn't easy for a foreign researcher to read and decode these kinds of data. The research assistant is much better equipped to do that. All of these elements reveal plenty of important information that should be used in analysis of the data. Very interesting. And on the final post, we're getting to the, 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 the guns bit. How do researchers navigate armed conflict zones? By uh, Joseph Atmosumba. Um, <clears throat> And he just this is the, the this is what it's like. And I must admit, reading this piece, uh, I just thought, wow, these people are really brave, and they're doing something really scary. And I'm not sure I would have the guts to do it. Um, to begin with, 
It's, and he writes in this terribly sort of dry way. And then you think about what he's actually talking about. It's, wow. To begin with, it's important to underscore general principles and guidelines which don't necessarily relate to the risks of intimidation, arrest or murder. Yep. Intimidation, arrest or murder. We're talking about research here, right? They can pertain, for example, to means of transport, which are a critical issue. The risk of traffic accidents is considerable and help can be very hard to find. How do we minimise these risks and arrange for assistance when needed? Once in the field, how one presents oneself is the next challenge. In areas controlled by state services, an honest and transparent presentation allows one to avoid potential problems with security services, as well as with military and civilian intelligence. That said, in some cases, too much transparency about where we're going or who we expect to meet can cause problems. It's therefore highly advisable to be only partially open with one's plans. Communicate only the necessary minimum amount of information to these services. To avoid suspicion when navigating between security zones in areas where the army has some forward bases, one must make sure to obtain official stamps demonstrating that the military hierarchy is familiar with one's research project. The politics of stamps suggests that the researcher ought to get his or her mission order stamped with various seals at the level of security services, the level of state, state structures, level of local customary leadership. It's also necessary to consider navigation in and between areas controlled by armed groups. One important strategy is to have the phone numbers of various armed group leaders on hand and call ahead or send a text message when moving through their areas of control. Certain local elites can also be of immense importance for facilitating a researcher's entry into a sensitive area when one doesn't have the contact information for, for armed group leaders. One can also send a courtesy message to the commander detailing one's role and academic affiliation as well as the subject of one's research and then request a meeting. Some armed groups know that students from their communities come to the field to collect data for their dissertations. So a researcher affiliated with a university or other institute of education can justify his or her presence in the, in the field on academic grounds. The most complex situations arise is if a researcher is affiliated with one of the NGOs operating within an armed group's sphere of control. When the researcher is perceived as associated to the organisation's activities, this can then severely impact the way local actors view the researcher, depending on whether a given NGO's work is seen as legitimate or illegitimate. Secondly, after handling logistical issues such as initiating conduct, contact and making introductions, one stressful and particularly delicate moment that can arise is when a researcher has to pass from one security zone to another. In this sort of no man's land, there's often an elevated risk of running into unexpected checkpoints or encountering local actors with ambiguous allegiances. Beyond the necessity of acquainting oneself with all these risks before entering these fields, it's also advisable to remain well anchored within a local network so as to get the most up-to-date information because things are changing all the time. For some people working in such context, maintaining neutrality and diversifying one's intermediaries or else working with a well-established and respected local organisation can help to facilitate access. In any case, we should seriously consider all precautions that guarantee our neutrality and allow us to obtain precise information on security dynamics. Researchers should think carefully about the way their choice of intermediaries affects their own security. They should also avoid staying in these environments for a long time so as not to find themselves stranded amid clashes. It's also important to remember that everything can change from one day to the next.
An area controlled by one group can pass into the control of another group or actor in very little time. And one might, one might not even see it coming. Wow. So that was a vision of research which I've never read anywhere else. Of You're in this kind of shifting, almost literally minefield of allegiances where you know, you're moving between basically groups that are at war and trying to maintain um, a relationship with all of them and say, I'm a neutral, I'm just here to do research, please let me get through and talk to the people on the ground. And you need to be so smart and so on your toes and even then it can all go wrong. And if you go wrong, if it goes wrong, who knows whether you're going to get much backup from the donor researchers, from the you know, official research establishment, which doesn't really get this and doesn't factor it into its plans. So just an extraordinary piece and an extraordinary series. I'm going to leave it there. I've got a bunch more going up next week, which will take you further into the extraordinary world of being a local researcher in the Congo. Thanks very much and have a great weekend. Bye.